Hi, and welcome to Podcast with Mike Fox. I'm a furry comic artist, and in this series, I'll be taking a look at the furry webcomics of the 90s and how they shape the fandom in ways that persist to this day. Today's comic comes with a content warning. We'll be discussing themes of sexual violence, self-harm, and just plain violence violence. It's pretty gruesome, so choose when and if you want to listen to this one. That said, it's episode two and I'm already breaking the rules. Today we're going to talk about a seminal yet traditional print comic, Martin Wagner's Hepcats. was a pivotal publication in my life, both as a person and an artist. And since it's impossible for me to discuss the history of the story of Hepcats without discussing my own history and story, I'm not even going to try. But let's get the basics out of the way and set the stage. Hepcats was a self-published comic from the early 1990s, written by writer and artist Martin Wagner. It began as a daily comic strip in the University of Texas at Austin's student newspaper called The Daily Texan. While each strip ended with a joke, the strip did have ongoing plot lines and character development. Even then, Wagner could not keep himself from developing the stories of these characters. The entirety of the early strips is available in Hepcats Volume 1, The Collegiate Hepcats, which is more or less a keepsake for fans of the eventual comic series than anything else. And importantly, Wagner was not a furry. Still isn't, as far as anyone knows. The characters were anthropomorphic, but mostly because they were drawn from various mascots so as to be relevant to the student body. The characters themselves are college students, and in that awkward transition period where the novelty of adult behavior hasn't worn off and is still viewed through the lens of teen perception. Now, mascots. When Martin Wagner eventually published the near-complete works of the Hepcats comic, the first thing both he and his editor wanted us to know, Hepcats is not a furry comic. Both of them wrote lengthy introductions to the collection, and each began with a full-throated defense of the comic as a serious work of art, implying it was so despite containing anthropomorphic characters. The word furry does not appear anywhere. This is intentional. Wagner was most certainly aware of the fandom, even in the early 90s. The characters began as mascots, and that's how they stayed. When he decided to tell the story he had inside him, he kept the characters he knew and loved. His introduction, interviews, and writing seemed to all vaguely defend the anthro aspect of the comic, and I'm not sure what he was afraid of. The comic itself was heavily inspired by Cerebus, the aardvark. 
less in story and tone. I mean, that one was a medieval-type fantasy, but more in ambition and style. Perhaps now it's time to talk about the art, actually, as it factors into a lot of the rise and eventual downfall of Hepcats. Let me start by saying Martin Wagner is a magnificent artist. I'd liken his illustration style to that of Aubrey Beardsley in his more complex works. Beardsley was mostly known for his high-contrast ink drawings, and Hepcats is entirely in black and white. Beardsley was one of the most visible figures in the aesthetic movement, which valued art being beautiful for beautiful's sake. He and other proponents of the movement were pretty controversial among Victorian society. Art to them was its own validation. It didn't need to uphold or teach moral lessons. It had no function in upholding society's norms, and it was just beautiful, for beautiful's sake. And this applies to Hepcats. The artwork is beautiful. Each page, each panel of each page, each element in each panel on each page is rendered as if it were a fine art engraving with meticulous hatching. His mastery of anatomy that feels real and carries weight is equaled by his complete and unmatched grasp of architecture and environmental design. If you told me that each setting, each scene, had begun as a photo taken in a real place, and then it was embellished by a man whose core artistic principle was beauty for beauty's sake, you might begin to describe the level of detail and effort put into the art of Hepcats. There's been nothing like it since. And it was this labor-intensive, no-shortcuts method to art which first drew me into Hepcats as a young artist. See, I remember kneeling on a paisley-patterned carpet in the middle of a bustling convention hall, flipping through cheap titles in a long box with my oversized art portfolio leaning against my shoulder. At the time, I was, of course, taking my art to be reviewed by comic artists so they could tell me how to become a comic artist. But I was also buying comics. It was a convention. My dad waited outside the convention hall, probably smoking a cigarette and killing time until he would finally drag me, probably kicking and screaming, uh, away from the tables as the convention closed. But at that time, I was flipping through that long box and came across a comic cover full of glorious negative space and a lovingly rendered watercolor of an anthropomorphic girl. Wagner would famously declare he didn't know or care what animals some of his characters actually were because it doesn't matter. And it didn't. I slipped open the sleeve and fingered through the pages and saw the lush settings, the contrast, the millions upon millions of tiny little hatches. Immediately, I grabbed every issue in the box, plopped them down on the table, including one that appeared to have an all-black cover with a red logo. The dealer looked up at me, glanced around, probably looking for my father. He asked how old I was. Fourteen. He gestured to the package at my side. What's that with you there? That's my art. So you're an artist? I'm trying to be. 
He nodded and took my money, and I slipped the issues into my bag and went on with my day. The art drew me in, and the dealer's kindness in selling it to me would start a lifelong, let's say journey, but more on that later. What I mean to say is the art is amazing. Check it out. Google it. Be amazed. And the comic was furry, something I think Wagner was a bit embarrassed about. But he knew enough to tell the story that feels natural. Follow your instincts. I also think Wagner had a bit of an intuition. From reading Cerebus, <laughs> from reading Cerberus the Aardvark, and from reading Bone, and from his experience publishing the college comic, he had an intuition for the story he wanted to tell, and why it had to be furry. I'm sorry, Anthro, as he would say. Anthro characters are ideal for projecting ourselves onto, and they offer just enough buffer as well, so that we can see the awful things happening to them without breaking, and withstand seeing those things without breaking or losing empathy. There's just enough suspension of disbelief that the horrors, the violence, the sheer scale of brutality he would put his characters through can communicate with us without breaking us. It softens the blow just enough to withstand while rendering us dazed from, well, remember that all black issue I mentioned earlier? Yeah, let's talk about when I got home that day. And it's going to get a little rocky from here. This is where it becomes impossible for me to talk about Hepcats without talking about my experience with it. That day at the convention, I got four issues of the 12 that were printed. I got issues 1, 2, 11, and 12. So I started at issue 1. The story is non-linear and narrated directly to the reader by Erica, the main character. Well, not really Erica as we find out, but Erica is what we'll call her. It's what she preferred. She starts with her fiancé awaiting news of her condition in a hospital in the late 80s. Arnie, her fiancé, is trying to keep his temper in order as the doctor reveals that her condition is stable and the result of an attempted suicide. See, she had flung herself into an ice-cold lake, hands and feet bound, as we later find out. Heavy, right? Erica thought so too, so she brings us back to a happier time in the story, just a few days before her attempted suicide. Now, at 14, I was struggling. I was seriously struggling. And, as I would come to find out, Eric and I had a lot more in common than passive suicide attempts. We were both running from our past, but, well, get to that later. The story is told in the past tense, by a seemingly very much alive, although pensive, healthy Erica. So, we know she survives. And she eventually becomes well enough to casually retell the story. She reflects honestly in her act of self-destruction, 
She's... Well, she seems to have finally gotten her head screwed on right. The comic was the most intense thing 14-year-old me had ever seen, especially compared to my collection of full-color X-Men and Spider-Man comics at the time. The only thing that came close as a comic we'll cover in a later episode, Arcana. So, anyway, there I was, putting down issue one. Mind blown. Naturally, I pick up issue two. Issue two takes us deeper into Erica's past and her life in New Orleans as a sex worker and exotic dancer. And then, a nine-issue gap. I just didn't have those issues to read. But I was hooked. The comic, for all I knew, was in issue 100 by the time I found these few fragments. I had no idea only 12 issues would ever be printed. Yeah, the internet existed, but there was nothing on there about Hepcats. Remember, this is probably a couple years before Sabrina Online came out. I wasn't even a member of the furry fandom at the time. I had no idea they were even called furries. I mean, I just knew I liked these funny little animal people. So, anyway, I'm just stalling for time. I picked up that issue with the sleek black cover. As I pull it from the sleeve, the lights hits it as it comes through my window. And I see... Lines, just a shade lighter than the pure black background. The outline of a scene. Erica... Erica is cradling a, a young girl covered in towels. The young girl is bleeding, and Erica is screaming. Sort of. She didn't seem to be aware she was screaming. I open the pages. Over the course of the issue, you'll find no dialogue. It's 100% visual storytelling. And you get more from the silence than you could from a thousand words. That's what a picture's worth, right? Anyway. We begin with a painfully rendered image from the bottom of a lake. From issue one, I know this to be the last thing Erica sees before she wakes up in the hospital. That's ten issues ago, I think. Are they still talking about this? Well, what's next? We're greeted with what I can only call a monumental achievement. The full vista of Sweetwater, Florida in 1983. Water towers, every home on every block, every road, every car and pedestrian in the road. Every backyard, everything. It's a picture you could fall into and never come out of. Sometimes I think I did. And I'm still there in my room in the mid-90s, my eyes glued on this full-page spread, just falling, falling in. I could die happy in those pages. But, of course, I didn't. Again, I'm just stalling for time. I did turn the page, and we find Erica with a young girl, putting a barrette in her hair. A 
car pulls into the driveway outside and the two girls race downstairs in a panic and set themselves to chores as their father enters the house with the most visceral contempt ever illustrated searing through the page. The girls pretend to wash dishes as the teenage son passes his father and responds to his dad's sneer with the middle finger. The next two pages display the violence. Amid panels like shards of glass, the father breaks the young man's little finger and then himself collapses in tears. The youngest sister reaches into the fridge and pulls him out a beer. And I think you see the only glimpse of love from this man you'll ever see as he holds her close. See, the young girl knows her father is sick and that this is his medicine. And it's a corrupted moment of tenderness when that reached deep down into me and raised memories I had buried a long time ago. As I reread the comic for this podcast, I can feel my stomach unwind. My whole life become unknotted. And even now, retelling it, it pulls me in every direction. Let's go on. This is where it gets... <sighs> yeah. Erica is sent out for groceries as her father drinks and reads his mail. Past due. Past due. The absence of a mother is clear. He looks at his bills and rips them up. And you see a look that becomes resolute. The youngest girl is sitting in front of the TV with a glass of milk. He sits beside her. It's another out-of-place moment of tenderness. You can only imagine she's thinking the medicine she gave him worked. And he touches the barrette on the top of her head. Cut to Erica walking back from the store with the bag of groceries. Coming through the back door. She sees a spilled glass of milk on the living room floor and her sister laying beneath a broken coffee table. When Erica pulls her body free, the blood between her legs was rendered in black and white, but if you've seen it, you'll always remember it in red. She wraps the girl, dripping as she brings her to her bed upstairs, says a prayer, and says goodbye. She goes downstairs to find her father and sits alone in his boxers, gun in one hand, blood dripping from the other. She does what I think any reasonable person would do. She tries to kill him. He's too big. He throws her through a glass door. A million shards fill the page. She runs away. The end. I said part of the appeal of anthro characters is that we could project ourselves onto them. And that they are enough of a buffer that we can survive seeing horrors like this without being set over the edge. However, I didn't need to imagine this experience. It was 
It echoed the severity of the violence I grew up with from a neighbor. So at 14, I lay there with my hand shaking, remembering. I felt guilt as I thought about my own memories of trauma. I had been told, after all, to tell nobody that if anybody ever found out, Mommy wouldn't love me anymore. And so even thinking about them felt dangerous. Seeing it in print like this, I had to know how Erica survived, how she lived through that and became the calm, thoughtful Erica I'd met in issue one. The one who acknowledged her suicide attempt, which was very much like my own, and who had moved past it. I needed to know, how did Erica survive? The next day, I rode my bike to the comic shop. I talked to the owner, who I knew well enough. Hey, do you have hepcats? He said, I have snowblind, yes. Cool, can you grab that for me? He looked at me and said no. No. No, he would not sell it to me. Why? Because of the scenes in issue two of Erica as an exotic dancer. By the way, issue two isn't in the Snowblind train paperback. But there is a scene where you see Erica's boyfriend fully nude. I already have issues two and eleven, I tell him. Sorry, not doing it. Maybe when you're 16. I asked every time I went for my monthly comic bulls. I waited until the owner was gone and asked the assistant. I waited for new clerks to get a job there and then tried to trick them, telling them it was put aside for me. I asked older-looking friends to buy it on my behalf. I waited outside and asked adults to buy it for me like a pack of cigarettes. When none of that worked, I tried to steal it. I got caught. And I never went back. And for me, that was it. A year of trying, and I'd never know how Erica survived. I'd never know how I would survive. And I just assumed I wouldn't. So I gave up on comics. I gave up on art. And I just gave up. During that brief time, between when I read issue 11 of Hepcats and when I gave up on everything, I wrote a story. I wrote my story. And I wrote two versions of it. One very literal. Uh, and the other more allegorical. I wrote a sci-fi story with different events standing in for events in my life. I wouldn't draw that story until about 2019, but I thought about it literally every night of my life. When PTSD kept me awake at night, which is most nights, I soothed myself by replaying the scenes from the story I'd written. Sometimes the violence, sometimes the recovery, sometimes the romance. Often the quiet moments of kindness that I'd written in because I didn't have them. Hepcats gave me permission to write my trauma. I dreamed, hoped, and worked every day 
that someday I'd have enough pull in the comics industry to get this story published. I set myself down and I worked hard. I went to more conventions. I took lessons. I did art studies and through the drive to tell this story, it happened. One day, one day like any other at a comic convention, I ended up speaking to the head editor at a well-known indie comics publisher. He said, here's my card. Send me some pages and we'll get you a project to do. If that works out, your own story. That was it. Then, then I got caught stealing Hepcats and quietly stopped being an artist. The editor's business card would be thrown out shortly after. I wouldn't draw again for 20 years. And in the interim, well, that was a blur of depression, PTSD, and drinking. I obliterated myself. In retrospect, all because I couldn't figure out how Erica survived. So like her, I ran from my past. I tried to drink it away. I tried to escape it, forget about it, but... <sighs> the habit I'd built up before this, of replaying the story I'd written, a story about my own trauma. Every night, I replayed the scenes in my head when I couldn't sleep. And it reminded me the pain is still there. Eventually, 25 years after having read Hepcats and giving myself permission to write my story, I sat down to draw it finally. That's Lieutenant Freya, by the way, the comic that I draw. Uh, it's heavily edited for personal reasons, but it's all there if you know where to look. And having recently finished that story, I thought I'd treat myself. I mean, I'm an adult now and I can buy Hepcats if I fucking want. So I did. Truth be told, it was a Christmas gift, but nonetheless, I would finally find out all about Erica and Hepcats and... Well, actually I wouldn't. I would not find anything out about Erica. Not anything I didn't know at least. It was when I went to get the trade paperback that I found out Hepcats only ran for 12 issues. We can tell if we go back to the original prints, which I own, that it was meant to be a long-term series, like Wagner's beloved Cerberus. In issue 11, which I still have, you can fill out a little form and send a check or money order to the publisher for a subscription that lasted several years. I honestly wonder if anyone did. Maybe if they had, Wagner would have finished the story. Much like how I walked away after getting my publishing offer, after issue 12, Wagner quietly walked away from the series, leaving us all to wonder where it was going. Now, my reasons are obvious, but what were his? Pretty simple, honestly, and a fact of life in indie publishing. It didn't pay the bills. He couldn't keep it up. With the amount of labor each page took, he couldn't sustain it even as a hobby when he got a job. So, he moved on with his life. 
and he wouldn't resurface until 2008 when he attempted to revive the comic on a WordPress blog. He tried, I'm sure, but nothing ever came of it, and the blog is mostly dead now. It has an email, which I've reached out to, but I doubt he checks it. I told him the same story I'm telling you today. But in short, Hepcats have been meant to be a long-running drama, like Jeff Smith's Bone or Dave Sims' Creation. But it only lasted 12 issues before. Bam, just gone. All we have is issues 1 through 11, which is part 1 of the story, and issue 12, which is the first part of part 2. And that's all we'll ever have. We never do find out how Erica survived, though I know how I survived. The comic that Hepcats inspired, my comic, the journey that Hepcats put me through, the work that resulted from my need to understand, that's what lifted me out. And completing my comic finally was the end point on my years of being a slave to trauma. I survived by telling my story. I survived by making art which rewrote my ending. As I recently heard essayist Jacob Geller say, I created art that ended up protecting me. And I was inspired by Hepcats. You know, at some point, my father asked to read some of my comics. Not thinking, I gave him Hepcats issue 11 in a stack of other nonsense. Ten minutes later, I heard him screaming from downstairs. He demanded I come down and explain myself. Why was I reading this? I remember sobbing as I tried to. I wanted to say, this is me, this is what happened, please help, please. But I just cried. He gave me a whole speech ripped from our local pastor about how art can uplift and degrade. He said it was degenerate work. He said that this art kills. No, no it doesn't. Dark Art saves, or saved me. Certainly did more than that speech my dad gave me. And my comic? The story I published? It was finally me standing up and saying, this is what happened to me. To paraphrase a song that was popular when all of this was happening in the 90s, the art we make... It grabs the reader and says, I need you to feel this, because I can't stand to burn alone. And when you make art like this, you make people feel things, and they take some of that burden away, and you're not alone. And it matters. It matters so much. Ah, but back to Hepcats. So... As a treat for myself, when I finished my comic, I finally got Hepcats, and I finally read the issues I missed, and Wagner's meandering introduction explaining the story. The issues themselves are a melodrama which detail the days leading up to Erica's suicide attempt. A mysterious man is following her, her boyfriend is trying to protect her, 
We find out the man is her long-lost brother who has finally tracked her down. They share their trauma from that horrible day, and the brother reveals that the younger sister survived. Erica decides to try and run one more time and jumps in the lake. We never see if she meets her sister again. We never see if the brother shows up to the hospital. We never know what happens. We just know Erica ran one last time after leaving home, changing her name, and trying to push that life away as far as she could, like it was some fever dream. You know, that's a lot like what I did for those 20 years I didn't draw. But, so, here's the question I have to ask as a survivor. Does Wagner write trauma well? Yes and no. See, he's not actually writing trauma. This is something I figured out when reading the series as an adult. He's not writing trauma. And his portrayal of Erica is little... Well, she's a little too much like Ophelia for, uh, for my taste. But it doesn't surprise me that he's not writing the authentic experience of trauma. The story isn't his own. As far as he's mentioned, Wagner's never suffered abuse of any kind. He was writing someone else's story. Unless writing her story, and more writing about the fallout trauma causes after the fact. Hepcats isn't about Erica's trauma. It's about how that trauma affected the people around her. This was Wagner writing what he knows. While working on the Hepcats comic strip, he met a young dancer at a club. Eventually, they ended up married. She told him about her experiences with an abusive father in Florida and her life after she left. He describes the storm of chaos and emotional collateral damage that followed with her. It was severe. She was not okay. Just like I wasn't okay. And he describes the impact it had on their doomed marriage. Her impulsive behavior, her breakdowns, her tears, her anger, the absolute chaos of the flashbacks. Well, it's hard to explain, but let me try to explain PTSD. The easiest way to say it is being stuck. You know, they've done MRI studies. Traumatic events which result in PTSD get written to the part of the brain normally reserved for processing real-time events. So when your brain remembers those experiences, it actually replays them and your brain thinks it's still happening. It's the fear of those moments being ever-present. It does not feel like it's over, ever. And you interpret current events as if happening in the context of those past events. Let's say a man, your husband, yells at you. Suddenly that man is your father and you're about to be hurt. So you react like a threat is there even if one objectively doesn't exist. It's living forever in the fear of a moment or moments that long ago ended. 
until you learn to place those events in the past tense. Not forget them, but acknowledge and understand that they are over. You live your entire life stuck in the worst possible moment, reliving it. You know, early studies on trauma, we're talking Victorian era, said that the main effect was repetition. You would repeat what happened. People will sometimes go to the extreme with this. They will act out the event as it happened, or they'll repeat the act done to them on others. Violence is a cycle you either break or repeat. There is no in-between. And the person who hurt me? Let me tell you a secret. The things she did to me had been done to her. Of course they had. Erica, in Hepcats, lived forever in that day. She lived in chaos, just as Wagner's wife had. She lived trying to outrun it. Trauma is a looming monster, and you can't outrun it, though. For anyone listening, I'll tell you the secret I learned from beating my own history. The thing I thought I would learn from Hepcats. How do you survive? You process the trauma. You make it past tense, not ever-present. You can't think it away, you can't ignore it away, and you can't just decide it's past tense. It takes time. The person who hurt me, they tried to end their cycle by becoming the strong one, by doing what was done to them to me. When it failed to make them feel strong, they hurt me even more. They got more violent until until it went off the rails. And by the time they got to me, they had gone too far to go back. But if they had done the work to move on from the trauma, to make it past tense in their brain, I would have had a different life. And so would the people around me. Erica reaches the moment in the comic where she can no longer outrun the past. And she chooses to try and kill herself. When that doesn't work, she talks to the reader. She confronts it. And the story we do have is of Erica processing the trauma. Of the process she's going through to make it a past tense event. The answer was right there the whole time. Issue one. If I'd only known. If you want to read Hepcats, it's archived online and easily searchable. Or I recommend getting Hepcats Volume 2 Snowblind Part 1, which contains the full story. Almost. It's missing issues 2 and 12, but they're easily available online. It's the single most important bit of art in my life, and I, uh, I hope I've explained why. I have no idea how well-known this comic is among furry fans today, if at all. But it's too important to me to let slide. And, Mr. Wagner, if you're listening, thank you. <laughs>